This is the Coming Out Loved and Supported Podcast, the group for the LGBTQ plus community and family of LGBTQ plus wanting to learn more and do better. I am your host, Annie Henderson. I'm a certified professional life coach and also a member of the LGBTQ plus community. We are so glad you're here. Please like and subscribe. And if you know anyone that is needing support as they are going through their journey, please share because I honestly believe by doing so, we can save lives. Hello, this is Annie Henderson, your coming out coach on the Coming Out Loved and Supported podcast. Thanks for being here for this episode. All right, listeners, it's finally time. We have an interview today with William. So let me first introduce William. Hello, William. Hey, Annie. (laughs) I'm so excited you're here. This is William Stell. And so let me tell you a little bit about him and then I will let him take the reins. William is a PhD student at Princeton University, where he studies American religion and sexuality in the 20th century. He is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ and previously served as the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Bordentown, New Jersey. You got it. (laughs) Um, And he is also uh, gay and married. So how long have you been married? So I've been married a year. Uh, my husband Robert and I got married last summer. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we did have a civil union before then for several years. And so we've got a number of anniversaries that we celebrate. There you go. You have them all memorized, right? <laughs> awesome. So William, I'm just going to let you take over. I'm so happy to have the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, I know our friend Trinell introduced mm. us and just wanted to us to be able to connect. And I know your story is going to be so valuable for others to hear about. So can you tell a little bit, bit about uh, your journey? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm so glad to be here, Annie. And I'm so glad that this podcast exists and that the work that you're doing um, in what used to be my hometown, um, yes. that that work exists, <laughs> and that you're, um, you're doing such, yeah, so many great things there. Um, yeah. When I think of my story, when I think of my coming out journey, I mean, it's difficult to, to put a time um, on it, to give it a, a succinct timeline. I mean, I first told um, a friend that I experienced same-sex attraction. That would have been the, the term I would have used at the time when I was 18 years old. And that would have been in college. I would have already gotten out of Sherman. So I attended mm-hmm. a, an evangelical liberal arts college called Wheaton College outside of Chicago. Um, and it was first semester freshman year when I confessed a friend, and confessed to a friend <laughs> that, uh, that experience. Um, and so mind you, this is long before my mind or heart was anywhere close to ready to identify with such mm-hmm. an experience, to think of that as being an important or integral or valuable part of who I am and how I want to be in the world. We're talking about a sin that needed to be confessed. We're talking about something that I saw and just assumed to be um, ugly, worthy, um, needing to be cast out, needing to be overcome. Um, And uh, 
when you asked the question earlier, you know, before we started recording, you know, what, how old was I when I came out? I answered this kind of 18 to 22. And I gave that age range because at that point at 18, when I told my friend that, I really do think there's, there's a sense in which my mind and heart were not capable of anything else. We're not capable of conceiving of this experience of same-sex attraction any other way. And I attribute that to the culture that I grew up in. I feel you there. <laughs> yeah, and it has uh-huh. to do, I mean, I grew up in a, in a conservative church. I attended more so a conservative youth group um, when I was in high school. And, uh, and I was part of a homeschooling community in, in Sherman and in North Texas. Um, and all of these and other factors led, to, um, led me to be in a place at age 18 where even in acknowledging um, the durable, seemingly kind of um, solidified experience of same-sex attraction, that wasn't enough. It would take me several years before I would be able um, to peacefully reconcile that with my faith at the time, for one, um, and before I would be able to, to own and internalize, no, this is, this is an integral part of who I am and of how I want to be in the world. Wow, yes, yes. That's a beautiful way to put it because, I mean, I feel like you've, you know, had the time and the opportunity and with your your schoolwork to dig so much deeper than many of us do, right? And for those of that are listening that are maybe allies and looking in from the outside, mm-hmm. it just gives such a great um, depth to it because, yeah, you're right. There's, there's not really a, for me at least, and it sounds like you, a certain point where this is it. <laughs> like I'm out and every everything mm-hmm. is resolved. And no, it's such a such a process and coming out to yourself and then certain friends and certain family members. And, and it's just like a step-by-step. But um, yeah. so with my myself and my partner, I knew something was maybe a little different about myself, but like you said, growing up where we did, I was, I, I knew I was different, but I just had no clue that it was in even an option in my head. And I, my partner though, grew up in a, you know, also a small town, but in Mississippi, but hmm. she said she knew when she was like five. Hmm. So I'm, I'm always impressed. And she's always baffled by people like me who are like, how did you not know? And I'm mm-hmm. like, wow, five. That's amazing insight into yourself. So yeah, do you recall sure. like a younger age where you knew either like her without a doubt that, you know, I'm, I'm attracted to someone of the same sex or like me where you just knew something was a little different? Yeah, I mean, certainly my earliest memories of, and (laughs) I mean, yeah, if we want to go back to age five and talk about this kind of um, (laughs) (laughs) pre-pubescent attraction, draw, Mm. however we want to talk about that, then certainly I have have memories um, of watching Aladdin or of watching Angels (laughs) in the Outfield, right? These are, (laughs) um, I could tell that kind of story if I wanted to. And then also certainly by the time I was pubescent by the time um, I started to, to recognize physical attraction. I mean, I was recognizing attraction to men. Mm-hmm. But again, it's, it seems more honest to me. Well, before I say that, I'll say that 
I do recognize in myself and kind of perceive in a lot of people, a strong, a lot of queer people, LGBTQ people, a strong desire to go as far back as possible. It is really comforting to be able to say, well, when I was five, when I was eight, et cetera. And the reason why that is comforting is because we know that it has a better chance of convincing those people who are skeptical, those people who think that there's no way this could be an integral part of who you are. And so we think the further back we go, the more likely we are to convince them. Now, I, again, like I said, I can do that. I can tell you know, folks about angels in the outfield, about Aladdin, <laughs> et cetera. But part of me also wants to resist that, mm-hmm. wants to say that, you know what, you aren't in a position to judge, aren't in a position to adjudicate whether or not my um, memories or my experiences of myself and my own desire are legitimate. Um, so whether I tell you it was five or whether I tell you it was 85, you know what, it's none of your business. Yes. I love, yeah, I like the, the thought of that. And I, I know, um, let me see one of your, your articles, the reasons why I gave up Bible debates, like (laughs) that, that kind of makes me think of that in that, Mm -hmm. yeah, we don't have to prove that, you know, it's not a choice. This is something that, you know, that I can remember, but I, I've never heard anyone actually talk about that in such a, uh, great passionate way like you Mm. just did so thank you for putting some words to that though yeah absolutely well and i'll since you mentioned that article i mean i'll elaborate on something that isn't in the article i mean you mentioned um i am a student i've been a student for far too long uh, (laughs) never and i've I've chosen to study things that's true well we we uh, in one way or another we are all students and want to continue being students (laughs) for sure you you get that um yeah i mean I pursued studies formally and informally that would allow me to um, think through my own sexuality, my own sexual desires. So whether that was theological studies, whether it was biblical studies, exegetical studies, whether it was historical studies later on, right now I do a lot of work um, around how Christians in this country in particular were talking about homosexuality or things like homosexuality 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. And let me tell you what, that is a fascinating history <laughs> because that changes over time. But I'm digressing. That's not what I, um, what I wanted to say. What I wanted to say is that through all these years of study, I've acquired for me personally a real confidence, um, right? There's, there's no book or biblical text or argument that you can cite, that you can throw at me that I haven't heard before, that I haven't worked. That, that's how I feel, at least, because I've been doing this for a long time, <laughs> spent a lot of hours doing this sort of thing. But you know, I remember um, my brother-in-law, who I love, mentioning to me years ago, he has a brother who, who is gay, and he mentioned to me, very understandably, you know, I wish that my brother, he's saying this, that my brother who's gay, that he had the kind of education, had the kind of, um, ultimately, the kind of confidence that you have, that you've built through reading, through studying, through all of this work, through all this schooling. Um, And I said, well, yeah, I guess, but also ultimately I just wish he didn't have to. Right. Like I would love for him and for all LGBTQ people, including uh, people of faith to be able to um, trust the spirit inside of them and to know that if the people around them don't trust the spirit inside of them, then that's their problem, not yours. Mm-hmm. Um, 
even if you want to, you can't convince them to trust the spirit inside of you. Um, yeah, and so I, I'm all for, I get requests for book recommendations, for article recommendations all the time, and I'm happy to throw those things out, different strokes for different folks, right? Depending on mm -hmm. your faith background or not faith background, right? Different <laughs> recommendations. Education is good. All of those things um, are good. And also, I think there's a place for stepping back and saying, you know what? Um, at the end of the day, um, yeah, for a person of faith, I trust the spirit of God inside of me. Um, yeah, and I want to surround myself with people who trust that same spirit at work in me and at work in us, right? And witnessing and celebrating the good fruit that is being born. Yes, I, I love the idea of not having to have to defend ourselves, mm -hmm. just as straight people don't have to defend themselves either. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I can see how parents with younger kids coming out and their need and their want to have the book recommendations so that they can for sure try to rationalize it to family members and and church mm -hmm. and friends and and stuff like that um so we'll definitely have to have the links to your articles and any future stuff um in the, in the show notes so people can find you because um i read your articles and they're they're great they're oh, so great you. to That's read kind. yes um so this podcast is called Coming Out Loved and Supported. So I would, if you care to, share a little bit about your coming out story and how that went with your parents. Mm -hmm, yeah. Well, I'm going to start with the end <laughs> because it's a happy ending. Yes. I'm just start <laughs> by saying that at this point in time, I feel fully loved and feel fully supported by my parents. Beautiful. And that's what all the parents need to hear, right? <laughs> it might can have a rough, rough start, but um, the happy ending can be there. Yes. For sure. There, there are often, not always, um, so I'm not trying to impose my happy ending on anyone else. I don't think that would be wise. But there are often unexpected happy endings in the future. Mm -hmm. um, that said, so that's, that's my happy ending. I'm starting there. That said... Um, my partner, my husband, has uh, family members who have essentially ostracized him. Mm. Um, my partner, um, yeah, has all sorts of stuff to work through, to deal with, and all sorts of grief, um, directly related to both immediate and extended family members. Um, and at this point, right, there isn't a happy ending on right. the horizon. And he's had to kind of come to terms with come to some sort of peace with that fact that, you know what, maybe things will change. I'm sure it's, of course, possible that things would change. But at this point, there's nothing more for me to do. And at this point, there's no real reason to expect change. So what does it look like to try to make, to try to create the best ending that I can, given what we have right now? Um, so anyways, that was all kind of preface. That was um, something to start. I mean, I, before the happy ending with my parents, um, I mean, I really struggled for years. Um, from ages 13, for the first time, my parents saw me looking at pictures of men scantily clad or unclad on the computer. 
And of course, back then it was a family computer. There were no <laughs> mobile devices, <laughs> <Right> . <laughs> no personal laptops. This was all out in the open, people. Um, so from then until um, 21, 22, when I No, not 21, 22, um, when I first told my parents, actually, I'm, I've got a boyfriend now, um, right? During that 10-year period, right, there was um, a kind of mutual, or at least from my parents' side, um, there was kind of a mutual understanding on, in their heads that this was a sin or a struggle to be overcome, mm -hmm. um, they didn't have much of an inclination. I kind of think they, they should have, they should have seen the writing on the wall, but they, they didn't. They, were, they weren't, their minds and hearts perhaps weren't capable of seeing the writing on the wall that I was wrestling with these things and praying with these things and talking through these things with, with quite a few people later on in college, especially, um, and into seminary. And, and so by the time I came out to them and said, hey, I've actually got a boyfriend in seminary, um, it was like a bomb them mm -hmm. they just did not see it coming um yeah and they they were most comfortable um slash just most able kind of see that relationship which was a quick relationship you know we hadn't known each other very long we kind of jumped jumped right in it was my first real relationship in life and i guess it was 23 not 22 now that i'm remembering the timeline so they um they were most comfortable most able to see that relationship through a lens of pathology um right, there was which and it was tricky because they weren't they were very resistant as many <laughs> people who um, are homophobic are right resistant to the idea that they were anti-gay that they were homophobic um that the fact that this was a relationship with another man had anything to do with um with the problem it was that i was moving too fast and it was that You know, you were looking at all those pictures of, of scantily clad and unclad men all those years ago, and maybe that really has something to do, and we think you should work through this with our counselor, et cetera. Um, so there were years when this was a very um, painful relationship for me. And then the last thing I'll say about it, um, for now at least, is that even when we started to get to a better place, even when... Um, My parents met my current husband when they loved him, when it was clear that our relationship was a beautiful thing for both of us and for our community. Um, even then there were um, challenges in remembering <laughs> um, for me and for both of us, for my parents and I together, there were challenges for us in remembering the pain. So by the time my parents were coming around to being fully loved and fully supported, I would say I, my take is that they were then neither capable nor able um, to acknowledge the pain that they had caused. So mm -hmm. they, they kind of couldn't remember um, some of the things they had said, some of the things they had done. They kind of couldn't acknowledge, um, couldn't honestly, um, yeah, acknowledge the full extent of the pain that I had experienced. It was very hard for them to acknowledge that. And, and that took us some years too. Um, yeah, and, and ultimately, you know, what I would like to think, and I'm going back to what I was saying earlier, um, even if the happy ending um, wasn't here right now, even if um, there were still 
hints, small or big, that my parents were still kind of pathologizing my relationship or my identity. Um, even then, I mean, right, I would need to do what I can, me and my loved ones, me and my community, we need to do what we can um, to make the best ending we could right now with what we've got. Yeah, that's so, um, I'm, I'm glad that y'all have your happy ending. And like you said, so many Thank people you. don't. Um, there's someone in, in one of my groups that I think it had been seven years and uh, and I don't think their parent had even met the grandchild yet. And, yeah. and then, you know, almost miraculously, uh, grandma came around and said she wanted to, you know, meet, meet the grandson and have a relationship and just, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's amazing. But I was talking to uh, one of one of my clients, and we talk about how you know it took us years and decades to come out. Mm-hmm. So it it does make sense that parents would also need a little bit of time to process and think and come out themselves, right? It it we hope mm-hmm. that it won't take as long. And I'm I'm so I'm in a lot of Facebook groups online for for parents and. Gosh, some parents are just ready <laughs> and, uh, and are, you know, supportive day one. Um, or, you know, some are even like planning ahead and thinking, you know, if my child ever comes out, you know, I, I will love mm. them and it's, it's fine and it's whatever. And um, so that's exciting to see that, that there is a shift. But for, do you have any, any advice for parents that um, maybe they have some inklings, <laughs> maybe yeah. there's some signs. Um, yeah. Any any suggestions? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, what I want to say, I mean, I think it's very wise um, to remember and very, very generous, very charitable to remember that everyone is on a journey in life. And just as we as LGBTQ people want to have grace and understanding for other LGBTQ people whose journeys may be moving quickly, who may be taking a long time, what may feel like a long time to them, what may not feel like a long, regardless of the timing of your journey, right? We want to have grace and understanding. I do think it's the case um, to some extent with perhaps a few nuances that we also need to have an abundance of grace and understanding for the journeys of allies or potential allies that our loved ones, our community members, they are also on a journey. Now that said, so there's a caveat. Um, <laughs> I think that we can often tell when someone is actually on a journey, is willingly, willfully on a journey or not. Um, so it is the case that there are people who just refuse to, and stubbornly kind of consistently refuse to take any steps to, to be moved on, on what could be their journey. And so for me, I mean, I mentioned book recommendations earlier. I've developed a habit. You know, I won't at this point sit down and actually debate with anyone, anything, Bible theology, like I, I won't do it anymore. I'm done. Um, I will recommend books. And I find that recommended reading is a really good indication of whether or not someone is willing to be on that journey. So if they will buy a book or borrow a book 
or my goodness, just read a couple articles online. It's not that hard, <laughs> people. If they'll do that, then chances are they're willing to at least be on the journey. And if they won't, you know what? It is just not going to be worth my time. If you won't even read a book, then why would I bother engaging with you? That's, that's my sense, at least. But when it comes to advice for parents, advice for um, allies, potential allies, I'm recalling something that my seminary one of my seminary professors said years ago, which is never underestimate, this is Dr. Robert Dykstra at Princeton Theological Seminary, um, never underestimate the ministry of a well-placed book. Mm. So what that means for him is that um, he's got books about trans issues, he's got books about pornography, he's got books about abortion, right? All sorts of things. Um, they're displayed um, somewhat prominently on his bookshelf. And actually, I'll stop talking about him because I, I actually don't remember what his bookshelf looks like, but I can talk about me. So when I was a pastor for two years, um, right, I took this very seriously, the ministry um, of, of a well-placed book. So it was important to me that my congregants knew when they were sitting um, in, um, in the study, in the pastor's office, that if they were going to glance around, they were going to realize, oh, it's okay to talk about abortion with this pastor. Oh, it's okay to talk about sexuality or about racism um, with this pastor. So parents, I say, um, find the books that you want your child to discover at some point, um, that you want them to discover and then know. I bet my parents or my grandparents or aunts and uncles or whomever, right, that they're safe to talk about this subject with. Um, yeah, and that's, that I see as being um, a relatively simple, you know, it'll, it'll cost you the cost of a book, so that's, that's not nothing. Um, but it's a pretty easy way, I think, to, to take a step toward being a good ally, toward being a good safe person. Yeah, I like the thought of that. It makes me think of educators and how, mm. you know, whether it's, a well-placed sticker <laughs> or, mm -hmm. you know, designating that it's a safe, mm -hmm. safe place in their room. Um, even if it's not something that they talk about in the class, like just having that visual. So what a, what a great idea. So I'm dying to hear what that book recommendation is that you keep mentioning. <laughs> <laughs> it totally, it totally varies. So the one, um, if I think someone's actually going to read a full book, and if they come from an evangelical or evangelical-ish background, I still recommend Torn by Justin Lee. Um, I don't, I'll be upfront, I don't identify as an evangelical anymore. I don't identify with what most people might think of as evangelical theology anymore. Um, but a lot of people do, and I certainly respect that. And I certainly respect that some people need to encounter, um, need to come to this subject, this issue, um, on those terms. And I think this book does that um, quite well and does so um, incorporating narrative. It personalizes the issue in ways that I think are not just powerful, but necessary. Um, so Torn by Justin Lee, the subtitle is something like Rescuing Jesus from the Gays versus Gospel Debate or something, something like that. Um, I also really love, it's a slightly smaller book. It's just three chapters um, edited by Walter Brueggemann, um, and then one of the other authors is Brian Blunt, and I don't remember the other, but it's called Struggling with Scripture, and it's a bit old by now. Um, but I think I also recommend this to um, 
people who come from evangelical backgrounds, but who are perhaps willing to think in more complex ways about scripture, people who aren't scared of a word like interpretation or hermeneutic, <laughs> who think, okay, I want to not just figure out where I stand on this issue, but also want to think um, yeah, in more complex ways about what it means to read the Bible um, with these issues in mind and what it means to come to the Bible, looking for issues, taking issues to the Bible and trying to, it's just a good, I'm I'm not explaining that part very well, but it's just (laughs) a really good um, way to get people, if people aren't used to thinking in those terms, thinking about biblical interpretation as not just a given, but something that needs to be thought seriously about. This book is, is particularly good at that. The last two I'll mention um, that I enjoy recommending. Um, Deconstruction is a word that gets thrown out there a lot. Um, And if there are Christians from evangelical or non-evangelical backgrounds who are really interested in thinking um, in, (laughs) um, oh, what's the word I want to use? Yeah, who aren't afraid of of a little deconstruction, who aren't afraid of reading a book where someone's going to um, force them to think in ways that might make them uncomfortable, um, not just about homosexuality or LGBTQ issues, but about sex and gender more broadly, then I love the book Unprotected Texts, T-E-X-T-S, <laughs> by Jennifer Knust. Um, and I understand she does pronounce the K, but it's K-N-U-S-T. Um, that's, that's a seminary read. That's a deep one. It's a hard one, but I think, but I think a very good one. The last one I'll mention that is um, also seminary appropriate, but also very much appropriate for lay readers, I think. It's called Queer Virtue by Liz Edman, E-D-M-A-M. Um, and this is a really lovely book because it gets beyond the defensive, gets beyond the apologetic, and says, okay, what might queer people, what might LGBTQ people be able to teach the church now? Mm. Um, I think it's a necessary question. And I think we often fail, that Christians often fail to even get to that point because they're so busy focused on the defensive, on the apologetic. Um, But it's a beautiful question. And I think Liz Edmond answers it uh, in multiple ways beautifully. So that's Queer Virtue by Elizabeth Edmond. Wow. I, I think everyone has some great books to check out now. I'm excited. <laughs> and I'll definitely share, share those as well. And I'll list them in the, um, in the notes. So if anyone wants to check those out, awesome. super excited. Um, so one of your articles mentioned, um, I think it was titled No Space, No Matter How Progressive is Impermeable to Bigotry. Or maybe that was the quote. Um, yeah, that was, I think that was the title that Huff, the, the HuffPost editor gave it. That was not my chosen title, but <laughs> you know what? It's their choice, not mine. <laughs> um, and that was a great article. So as you mentioned, it's in HuffPost. Um, and let me see what I saved from it because I, I, it says, no matter how tolerant you think your town is, no matter how safe your space seems, you can always be infiltrated by haters. No space, however progressive, is impermeable to bigotry. That doesn't mean we stop working to make spaces safer. It just means that we are only kidding ourselves when we think that would never happen here. 
Um, and then you go on to say that bigotry roams. <laughs> I like the way you phrased that. Um, and you talked about, was it a, a, a group, a small group that y'all had going and then someone that y'all had never met before came into the group and it, at first it was a safe space. And then do you want to tell a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, I might've made, I might've referenced a couple of stories in there, but the main one that I recall is um, when I was a pastor in this small town, this small, seemingly quite progressive town in New Jersey, um, the local UU church has a rainbow flag um, hanging. The flag got torn down and a couple of other local establishments, local restaurants had their rainbow flags torn down. Um, and we, we had a ceremony um, at the UU um, congregation maybe a month or so later where we commemorated a new flag and raised the new flag and, and a few of us spoke. And I remember thinking that day and in the lead up to it, you know, someone was willing to commit. Someone hates the idea of this flag so much that they were willing to commit, not just brash bit, but criminal acts. Um, to trespass and take this, take this property, steal and destroy this property. Um, I have no good reason to trust that this same person isn't around. I have no good reason to assume that this person um, couldn't pass me on the street. And I have no good, I mean, if this person was driven to this act just by seeing a flag, what might this unknown person right do when they see me and my husband walking with our hands, hold, you know, holding our hands, mm -hmm. each other's hands down the street. I mean, it was a profoundly fear inducing experience. Um, and as I recall, that was the initial impetus for the article, you know, um, it's good to work towards safe spaces and it's good to know too. Um, <laughs> that they can always be that bigotry roams is, um, as I said, and that, right? Um, ultimately, we can't ensure safety, um, safety in spaces. What we can do is um, surround ourselves as much as possible with safe people. Um, and I've written about that elsewhere too, just the importance, however safe or unsafe your communities of faith or um, other local communities are, just the importance, the necessity of surrounding yourself with people who remind you that you are loved and supported. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's safe people and not safe spaces. But uh, I think that's very valuable for everyone to take away. So you, um, in another one of your, your articles, you also mentioned that Jesus says, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Um, what does is, what is that, that verse make you think of? What does it bring up for you? Mm. I remember for me, the critical turning point in um, supporting women in ministry. So we're going back and I confess, right? I have to, right? grace abounds, I trust. There was a time in my life where mm -hmm. I was not okay with this. When I was 18, 19 years old, the critical turning point wasn't all the things I was reading in class about gender and about theology and about the Bible. There were plenty of those. Um, but was a friend, was my friend Natalie, um, who at the time said, I know God's calling me to ministry. 
And well, my goodness, I certainly knew Natalie and certainly loved Natalie and certainly trusted the spirit in Natalie, frankly, more than I trusted the spirit in myself. <laughs> so who was I to look at the fruit in this person's life um, and, to, and to condemn the tree or to say that, no, 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 I know that looks like good fruit, but it's actually not. I mean, the, <laughs> it, it just didn't, didn't make sense. And so it was that personal experience, that personal relationship that was um, ultimately convincing for me, even as there were all sorts of other um, forms of evidence, right? Biblical and otherwise that I began to wrestle with over time. And I think similarly, um, I mean, there is, um, there are all sorts of, ethical approaches that one can extract from the Bible, right? There's no one biblical way to go about thinking ethically or trying to live a right life. But I think one that um, comes up in Jesus's ministry repeatedly and in other texts in the Bible repeatedly that I find quite powerful is this precisely, you know what? Look for the good fruit. Um, and if all you can see is a bad tree, all you can talk about, all you can write like feel is this is a bad tree, um, then something's not right there. And so I, I think of Natalie, I think of my own ministry and the ministries of hundreds um, of LGBTQ ministers all over the world, um, openly LGBTQ ministers all over the world. Um, I think of relationships, I think of beautiful partnerships um, where people of the same gender or um, yeah, same orientation, um, are flourishing in the world and spreading God's love um, in the process. And yeah. I like it. My, Look for the good fruit. <laughs> exactly. That, that would be one of my parting kind of hopes or wishes for, for people, both allies and for, um, and for LGBTQ people themselves who have come out or are looking to come out, right? That they would look for, notice, um, appreciate, and trust the good fruit. Mm. That's such a good, good takeaway. Um, is there anything else, William, um, anything that you would say to anybody that is still in the closet and they are just living with that fear, fear mm. of losing their church, fear of losing their family and friends, their job, mm. any words of wisdom? Yeah. Yeah. So when I was a pastor, um, for two years, solo pastor of a small church. There were a few people in my congregation who were out. Um, there were a few people in my congregation who were not. And it was important to me to never put pressure on anyone to live, um, to be public one way or the other. So I, um, I certainly am convinced that a lot of good has happened because people have come out. And I'm also convinced that for a lot of people, coming out um, is precisely what they need um, and is a very good thing. I guess more so than trying to convince people who are in the closet to come out at any, any particular time, for sure. Um, I mean, I want everyone to have, I mean, I guess at least one person, but really a community, really a group of people. I mean, multiple people. Um, multiple friends, multiple loved ones um, with whom they can be fully honest. Um, mm -hmm. So that's what breaks my heart is not that someone isn't out at their job. Um, 
which could be a good thing for them and for society could also be a horrible thing for them. Like I'm not, I'm not going to judge. Um, but what matters to me is that people who are in the closet aren't in the closet with everyone. Um, that seems to me just based on what I've seen, what I've experienced, um, just crucial to thriving, if not surviving, um, but certainly crucial to thriving. Yeah. And that's, um, that's one of the reasons we opened up the um, LGBT and allies group, because, mm-hmm. you know, there's some people in there where, may, yeah, they're not out and maybe they don't want to be out ever. And mm-hmm. maybe they're building up to it or supporting others, but it's a place where they can share their story and, mm-hmm. and be proud and celebrate and um, just do everything in, in their own timeline. I know. Yeah. Um, in some of the groups I'm in, people are like, you know, have like, how do I come out like to everyone? Like, what, and I'm like, mm-hmm. that's up to you. Like, I, you know, I, for myself, I did it in so many different ways. Like, for I, sure. um, I think I wrote a, a handwritten letter to my mom, <laughs> send it the slowest way possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Maybe it'll get lost. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and like for, for, I have a big family. Um, so eventually I just started bringing my partner to family functions and mm-hmm. um, that's how they found out. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, there's some people I would, I don't, need to come out to. And that's like mm-hmm. you said, if you, if you have a one or two or a couple, and of course, if you need a place, a safe place, then feel free to join our, our Facebook group or reach out to me. Um, and William, where can they find you in the future and all of your amazing articles? Yeah. Yeah. I'm on, um, that's kind. So I'm on Facebook pretty often. I'm not, you know, um, especially active at all on Instagram. Um, so if I was really trying to promote myself, that's where I'd be, but um, <laughs> people are always free to, to um, reach out to me on Facebook um, and on Twitter. Um, yeah. My handle is WM Stell, um, M as in mom. Um, yeah. And I'm on, on both of those places. Um, it's helpful if we have just because of the chaotic, um, abundance that is Facebook. Um, it's helpful if we have mutual friends <laughs> that'll <laughs> help kind of, uh, sift through, um, everything. But, um, but yeah, I'm uh, certainly anyone who's listened to this podcast and wants to, wants to be in touch. I'm more than happy to. Thank you, William. That means a lot. Okay. So this, this part seems a little random, but it's for one of our previous Happy Mama Village listeners. And it is, what are you watching? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I never have good answers to this question because, you know, I just read all the time. Um, so comfort TV, I'm going to, I'm going to give the, the bad answer that I know no one wants, and then maybe a decent answer. So the bad answer no one wants is something that's been on forever that a lot of people have seen, but my husband and I watch uh, Golden Girls religiously. Yes, yes. And, um, and it's, it's dated, not everything. In fact, quite a few things don't stand up to time, um, but it's a fascinating window. It's charming one, and it's a fascinating window into um, 
yeah, what was edgy and what was funny in, yeah. and in the late 80s and early 90s. And so many things in that show were like before its time. Absolutely. Like I'm always Absolutely. like, wow, that's some, because yeah. I, I always see videos popping up about stuff that's happening right now. And it's, oh, here's a Golden Girls clip on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then recently, we're working our way through The Last Dance, Michael Jordan documentary. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, and then I think I mentioned to you earlier, if, if folks just want to watch an actual documentary, right? Toni Morrison's documentary is on, on Hulu, and that's just fabulous. Um, yeah, and then... <laughs> Robert and I are also watching The Muppet Show. Like I said, no one actually wants these recommendations. No, no. This is a bad question for me. A great no, it'll be perfect. Else, but a bad the, one for me. <laughs> the person that is listening just for this piece will, will love those recommendations. That's beautiful. And now that, like, that you mentioned the Golden Girls, even though you know we've seen them and Sam used to just play them in the background <laughs> while she would get ready. Uh, I could probably start watching that with my daughter now. Oh, yeah. That's some yeah, classic stuff. So. about time. <laughs> All right. Uh, William, again, thank you so, so much for, for sure. being here. Um, Skeeter wanted to, she could hear your words of wisdom. She came in to, I'm to so, listen. Well, ultimately, at the end of the day, this is all for Skeeter. <laughs> all for Skeeter. She's learned so much. Um, all right. So the quote for today is, this world would be a whole lot better if we would just made an effort to be less horrible to one another. And that's by Ellen Page. Thank you once again for listening to the Coming Out Loved and Supported podcast. Please check out the show notes on how to reach out and other great resources for support groups and more. If you haven't heard this today, I love you. And yes, you are enough in all the ways. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you are the kind of person that likes to help others, then please share this with friends and family. If it helped you, then it will probably help others. Also, if you're needing support and inspiration daily, then connect with me at Life Coach Annie on Facebook. I am so grateful for you taking the time to listen today. If you could do me a favor, please leave a positive review so that more people in the LGBTQ community can find meaningful content that motivates. Right.